Hi, I'm Dr. Lisa Dunn, and thanks for joining me here today on The Communication Architect. Each week, we'll share content that will empower you to grow your personal leadership capacity through the development of communication competencies that build emotional health and relational resilience. We'll unpack some practical applications of interpersonal, intrapersonal, family, and organizational communication. And we'll connect with stories of transformation that will inspire you to achieve personal and social change. Now, let's build the scaffolding you need to become a communication architect. In the classic children's tale, The Emperor's New Clothes, an entire village is deluded into conformity. Playing on the vanity of the emperor and the people's fear of looking foolish, two swindlers convince the leader that they can weave him beautiful clothing that will be invisible to anyone lacking wisdom. Though deep down the villagers know the truth, they don't trust their own opinions enough or feel confident enough to be the truth teller, the culture shaper that will break everyone free of the deceptive mindset. They've been culturally conditioned to fear the perceived stigma of the whistleblower label. There's a reason the story has been translated into 100 languages. It resonates with the human condition. It's the ultimate example of groupthink. And I don't think I've seen it evidenced so powerfully in America as in the present day. From allegiances to masks to vaccines to Marxist movements, our nation is outplaying a collective theatrical production of the emperor's new clothes. Many know or at least suspect the truth, but their fear of man and their desperate need for approval keep them from speaking up, from delivering the truth that would set others free. One of the arenas we see this playing out today is education. As we talked about in the last episode, part one, many parents have never been given the freedom to think fully for themselves in realms like education, so it's difficult to imagine the possibilities that exist on the other side of that freedom. We see it right now in working with many of our brand new homeschooling parents. They've been told their whole lives the books their children must read, the assignments they must complete, and when and where and with whom they need to complete them. When they get around people who are walking in freedom, they start to envision for the first time the possibilities for themselves. Now that they have a rare glimpse behind the iron curtain of the public school system, they're starting to connect the high rates of anxiety, depression, and suicide ideation to the the atheistic Marxist teachings of their children's 40-hour-a-week indoctrination center, that public school classroom we've been talking about. Parents are beginning to recognize that their foundations in their children, the, the foundations they form in their childhood and in their teenage years will guide them in the way they think, the way they act, the way they interact, the way they work, the way they vote. Remember, Luke 640 tells us that the student will become like the teacher. We will become like the company we keep. We talked in our last episode about the mindset that many parents adopt, that their kids only need them in the early years, and once they're potty trained, we turn them over to the, quote, experts to do the real work. This is such a disservice to parents everywhere. There's no one more qualified to love or care for your child than you. My friend Denise Myra writes in her book, No Ordinary Child, that many Christian parents spent years waiting for God to open their womb. And when that child first reaches her independent milestone of something like potty training, they check off the box and hand her off to someone else to train her up. Parents, it's more than just potty training. Our kids need us K to college. And in this episode, we're going to talk more about some of the practical applications of parental involvement. In 20 years as an educator, one of the things I found to be most maddening was the deliberate attempt to keep parents out of the lives of students in our country. Even if a parent was paying, let's say, $130,000 for a child's education, that parent did not have the, quote, right to know what was happening to the child. 
We'll talk in a moment about where that led, but realistically, even the best teacher in the world can't replace a parent. A teacher has an opportunity to invest in a child once a year, maybe two years at most. Is that teacher going to stay in the game the next 10 years, the next 15 years? Of course not. And yes, I know there are bad parents. I grew up in a home with one, but that doesn't mean we have to sever the rights of good parents. It's a bit like the COVID nonsense. Why are we sequestering the healthy instead of healing the sick? The friction on the topic of parental rights and control continues. Just this week, there was an attempt to pass a bill that would allow an 11-year-old child to circumvent his or her parents' desires and get a vaccine if the child, the 11-year-old, believed it was the right choice. Are you hearing what I'm saying? This is an age-old battle over control. If the left can't kill us off through abortion, their next best hope is to indoctrinate our children and turn them against their parents. But parents, you are the key to success in your child's life. The Harvard Family Research Project has found that the positive impact parental involvement bears on academic success doesn't stop just after potty training. It doesn't stop after kindergarten, and it doesn't stop in adolescence. In fact, parent participation is equally relevant in post-secondary academic achievement. The lead researcher on this project, who's a professor at the University of Illinois, Chicago, found that parent involvement tends to decline as children reach the upper grades. She says this is because there's a complex structure of school systems, fewer schools asking for help from parents, and curricula that actually leaves parents feeling intimidated. Sound familiar? It's almost as if parents are being squeezed out of the education system. No, say it isn't true. According to the National Education of Secondary School Principles, the majority of parents express an interest in being involved in their children's education. One writer said family requests for involvement are are constant. But many parents feel unable or invited when it comes uninvited when it comes to their children's education. Movements like the UN Rights of the Child, which seek to overthrow parental rights in favor of child rights, that is, a child has the right to decide what is best for himself without parental, quote, intervention, like the vaccine I just talked about, make these messages even more confusing for parents. And many parents out of a supportive but decidedly uneducated desire to help their children just hand the reins over to someone else. Harvard's extensive longitudinal study that I just mentioned followed a cohort of students from the eighth grade through high school, college, and into the workforce. Listen to this. The study found that parents' expectations and essentially their belief in the students' academic capabilities were predictors for students' success. Quote, the further in school parents believe their adolescents would go, the clearer the adolescents' perceptions of such expectations, the higher their own academic expectations, the higher their academic achievement. What they believed, they achieved. What we think about, we bring about. What we speak, we reap. This is not some new age rhetoric. The tongue has the power of life and death, and those who love it will eat its fruit. And the marker for the Harvard study didn't diminish as students aged. That long-lasting effect, quote, that parent involvement variables have on the academic achievement of adolescents and young adults indicate that parent involvement during high school and beyond still remains an important source of guidance and support for the developing individual. Psychologist and author Dr. David Walsh explains that need for parental guidance well into young adulthood. The brain, he says, develops in spurts until age 25. Until this quarter of a century mark, the prefrontal cortex is still under construction. And since this is the area that regulates impulse control, aggression management, emotional control, and self-regulation, it's important that adolescents have a good grounding in parental oversight. Dr. Ruth Cross, who's an associate professor of clinical psychology at the University of Chicago, agrees. Adolescence, she says, is a time where everything is out of kilter and nothing is stable in the body or mind. 
Parents, she says, must step in as the, quote, designated prefrontal cortex, offering common sense guidance and advice. Most of my post-25 students tell me that they can clearly recall the moment when they started thinking, quote, differently, where their whole brain was engaged in the problem-solving process. And until that point, they really do need to have conversations with adults, one of whom is preferably their parent, to help guide and direct their decision-making process. But instead of incorporating family and school, though, the modern K to college educational environment attempts to decentralize the family unit from the child's life at 18 and even younger, as we're seeing across the laws, the laws and the bills that are trying to be passed right now. Despite the fact that these vital components of judgment and self regulation are unformed and they're inconsistent in the developing adolescent's mind. If we want our children and our young adults to progress socially, scholastically, emotionally, spiritually, we must support this growth by providing access to a healthy foundation instead of defaulting to options that essentially sever the ties that bind. A number of educational institutions and governmental regulations were designed to do exactly this, literally to sever families from their students. One such example of academia positioning itself against the structure of family accountability is what's called the Family Educational Rights to Privacy Act, well known by the name FERPA. The U.S. Department of Education, in its FERPA notes, says that FERPA is a federal law designed to protect the privacy of student education records. Now, it's been in effect since 1974, and I would say that this archaic, misguided law, which applies to all schools that are receiving funds through the U.S. Department of Education, there is always a... Uh, There's always a thread. There's always a tie. There's always some level of control if you're receiving money from the the government. But FERPA requires that the control of a child's education records be transferred to the student at and beyond the age of 18. What that means is that the average college student and the student's parents, the the control now, uh, now takes away access to all records pertaining to education. That includes grades, academic standing, attendance records, financial standings, results of any disciplinary proceedings, hospitalization, treatment for any emergency or life-threatening medical or psychological conditions, missed classes, and disruptive or erratic behavior. Are you hearing this? Only through a written release from the student can a parent gain access to a student's file even if that parent is completely funding the student's education and the student is living at home with a parent. Is the lunacy here coming through loud and clear? Neither the professor nor the administrator has the, quote, right to under FERBA's regulations to speak to a parent about the student's records. And in a number of cases, this has been problematic, even life-threatening. Thomas Baker, who's an associate dean of students at the University of Iowa, notes the increasingly dramatic number of college students engaged in self-destructive behaviors and the challenges FERPA regulations have presented in some of these cases. In his discussion of a rash of tragic suicides on college campuses and the administrative decisions not to notify parents of prior suicide attempts, Baker argues that violating a student's privacy rights may be a necessary step in protecting the student's well-being. In a court case, a college dean had learned of a student's suicide interventions. The dean met with a student and required him, listen to this, to sign a statement pledging not to hurt himself. The student committed suicide two days after signing the pledge, tragically. Obviously, most parents would recognize the futility of asking a suicidal patient to sign a note promising he wouldn't hurt himself. This is a naive oath at best. Yet, as schools are increasingly called upon to take up that parenthood mantle on themselves, this kind of faulty decision-making is likely to be more the norm than the exception. 
To this end, Baker says he desires to see parental notification as part of the overall strategy in suicide prevention and mental health. As he quotes, protection from harm includes the ability to influence the student's behavior and parental notice influences the behavior of a troubled student by reinforcing positive feelings that exist between the student and his or her family members. Inherent in the system of disclosure is a belief in the value of accountability. Quote, sending a copy of the parental notice letter to the student encourages the student to refrain from self-destructive behavior in the future. In other words, partnering with parents, working together with parents, not severing the relational ties that bind. Ideally, Baker says, a more open relationship with the student's family will prevent further self-destructive behavior as well as dress and heal any existing dysfunction within the family. But... At present, look it up, FERPA's archaic regulations continue to, quote, protect a troubled student from the prying eyes and ears of his parents. Children need guidance, and not in the mindless words of a distraught singer, a superficial celebrity, or even predominantly, at least in the transitory connection with a government education system. They need parental support, community support. The road is not easy, and young adults are often ill-prepared emotionally, socially, physically, spiritually, mentally for the challenges ahead. Some children have great difficulty dealing with interpersonal issues that are bound to arise in student settings, things like peers they dislike, instructors they fear, courses they don't understand, the complex challenges of relationships, stress, overactive hormones. Instead of relying solely on peer feedback, which though it can be useful in the simpler cases, is woefully inadequate in the more serious cases, students should be encouraged to maintain open relationships with their parents. And at the very least, FERPA laws should default in favor of accountability, not isolation. A peer's friends or mentors may do their best to assist struggling students, but a mentor is not a mother and a faculty member is not a father. Forcing pseudo-parental status is an unfair burden on our educational system and more importantly, on our student population. We live in a quiet family neighborhood in a suburb of San Diego. And last month, one of our neighbors on our street decided to rent out their house as an Airbnb. Now, in addition to this action being a violation of HOA rules, it also led to some very interesting interactions with a rotating mix of Airbnb visitors. Without exception, each group that came in had the same goal in mind, to stay up partying in the backyard at the top of their lungs from midnight to 4 a.m. I am not making this up. As the surrounding neighborhood grew increasingly frustrated with the noise levels and the perceived disrespect for our quiet family neighborhood, our responses became elevated. First, we posted signs on the door. We called the HOA. We called the police. We yelled out the window. And one night, after several times in a row of being awakened at 2 o'clock in the morning, some of the neighbors went to the Airbnb front door, all vigilante style, to confront the incessant party crowd. On one of the many sleepless nights, I started thinking about the weird circadian rhythm these groups had developed. While the rest of the world was awake, they were asleep, often waking up around 3 p.m. and then going to sleep at 6 a.m., while the rest of the world around them followed an opposite schedule. Not only was their nocturnal habit a setup for poor physical, neural, and emotional health, it was also causing a great deal of animosity between them and their new temporary neighbors. Their rhythm was off. They'd been conditioned to subsist on a substandard diet of lawlessness and anarchy in the midst of a quiet, law-abiding community. If you do well, God told Cain in Genesis 4, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at at your door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. The desire of sin is contrary to us. Sin desires to rule over us, but both adults and children alike must learn self-government. 
We must learn to reign in temptation because sin is ever crouching at the door, and the devil is continuously searching, scouring the ground for a foothold. The unregenerate mind, like our recent neighborhood visitors, has such an extraordinary level of brokenness or a disconnection with personal discipline and self-government that it craves the flesh. This is the product of socialization. And where does the socialization come from? We become like the company we keep, whether virtual or physical. As Pastor Jürgen Matthesius says, it's a generational mindset. The current generation has become so ensconced in pleasure, he says, that it bristles at the mention of discomfort, of self-sacrifice. Quote, we live in a world where there's constant access to pleasure, so we're not well-versed at handling discomfort. But, he says, if we want to be a prophetic voice, the price of that call is discomfort, speaking the truth, being the light, carrying the Lord's burden. In discussing the major shift in attitudes that's recently occurred in the culture at large, historian Peter Burke says, there's a tendency to take structures less seriously, associated with a dizzying sense of liberty and also a sense of uncertainty and precariousness. He says, we live in an age of fluidity, where even personal relationships seem to be less constant than than they used to be. In reviewing that role of a student's right to educational privacy, her right in essence to be, quote, protected from the very parents who may be footing the bill of her college experience, we would do well to consider this anti-family march toward an era of fluidity, examining the vast number of challenges American society is currently facing as a result of the decentralization of the family. To do so, we would need to become self-aware as a society and to view the appreciable changes that have taken place in the culture over the last three decades. As Burke asks, how can artists check a a schema against a reality if their view of reality is itself a product of the schema? How do we get into that metacognition viewpoint and mindset? As products of the culture, we have to examine both our packaging and our waywardness. C.S. Lewis once said, we have to step outside of our generational lens and think about the way it was, the way it is, the way it will be if society does not apply the brakes to some of these potentially destructive, quote, safeguards. In essence, FERPA was the spawn of the, quote, educational freedom movement in the 70s, the era that brought us the values clarification movement, as well as a number of authoritarian eschewing ideologies. During that phase of anti-establishmentarianism sentiment, a number of creative strategies washed over all things educational, governmental, and domestic. Though these educational support strategies were designed to help students stay afloat academically, at least in theory, in retrospect, many parents and educators have realized that the strategies were and still are submerging students in a violent undertow, creating an automatic escape route, directing students away from accountability, especially at a time when they remain vulnerable to poor decision-making tendencies. It's a disservice to students, to educators, and to families. In fact, perhaps the greatest irony of the Family Educational Rights to Privacy Act is its own internal enigma. FERPA isn't protection for families, it's protection from families. And FERPA's spirit continues on today, make no mistake, even in fledgling programs. During his reign of power, President Obama announced that he favored longer school days, longer school years, government programs that offer up to 300 more instructional hours of school. Right now, U.S. children spend about 1,146 hours a year, which is way more than Asian countries that regularly outscore U.S. counterparts in science and math. Singapore, for example, spends 903 hours per year in school. Japanese children spend 1,005, so 140-ish less than, uh, than American students a year. 
Now, uh, who's paying for these extra school hours, extra meals that make up the lack of family support? Especially ironic is the extra work assigned to caring for, quote, disadvantaging, disadvantaged students. And who is footing that bill? Ironically, it's the taxpayers, the families themselves, who are working one, two, three jobs to provide for their children. See the irony? Why wouldn't we just instead invest the money directly into families? Why not educate moms and dads on parenting, nutrition, reading skills, self-empowerment? Teachers are actually a short-term solution. A child gets, uh, gets a teacher for a year. A parent has a child for a lifetime. Pouring more money into a system that is already failing is like putting a Band-Aid on a gaping wound. Now, from a statistical standpoint, the sad truth is that the public education system in the United States, it's been on a downward spiral since the 70s. It's no surprise that 65% of a public school teacher's day is spent in classroom management when students have not been required to demonstrate respect demonstrate respect for the teacher's authority or the intrinsic value of their own classmates. Parents regularly defend their truancy and defiant children in spite of wrongdoing, further undermining the already eroding foundation of respect and authority. Values clarification continues to rear its ugly head in the modern classroom as well as the home, and little has really been done to turn that tide in either realm. One only has to compare the statistics to see the current public school methodology is not working and the school environment is not even a close runner up in the contest from the most impacting predictor of socioeconomic success rates. In fact, some of the most successful children in the history of our country from an academic standpoint utterly defy the nation's current educational mindset. In a recent study of almost 12,000 home-educated students, researcher Dr. Brian Ray confirmed that the public sc- what the public schools have denied all along. Home-educated students outperform their public school counterparts by only almost 30 points on national standardized tests, such as the California Achievement Test and the Stanford Achievement Test. Even when accounting for parental education, gender, the studies remain constant. Whether a parent had a college degree or not, the home-educated children scored in the 84th to 89th percentiles in reading, language, math, science, and social studies. The statistic held true even when the parent did not hold a college degree. Clearly, the study illuminates the need for a paradigm shift. As Burke says, change is often the result of conflict. And if we are to begin an education overhaul, the journey must begin with one small, seemingly insignificant step. If we as parents truly desire to transform the educational process for society's young adults, we would do well to begin evaluating and addressing the ironies inherent in America's education system. Without significant change, we will continue to foster a false sense of independence, a lack of accountability that results in continued personal loss to students as well as the society where they're intended to thrive. The bell tolls for all of us. Lower rates of passage, higher rates of self-inflicted injury or death will have obviously profound implications for the family, the corporate sector, the economy, the nation itself. We must begin the process of restoring parents to their rightful place of rule, educating them as well as supporting them in this all-important venture of child-rearing. Unlike the characters in The Emperor's New Clothes, we do know the truth. We do understand that we are called to be truth tellers. We are commissioned to be culture shapers. We are compelled to break off the chains of the deceptive mindset in this generation. We know that it's time to break free of groupthink, to speak up with a voice of authority and hope. The Emperor's fate is revealed, and it's time for the reign of confusion and manipulation to end. It's time to break free from the fear of man and the need for human approval so that we can rise up, speak up, and deliver the truth that will set people free. Thanks again for joining us here on The Communication Architect. If you have questions about today's episode, or if there are topics you'd like to see us address, 
Send your comments via Instagram to at Dr. Lisa Dunn or via email to contact at drlisadunn.com. That's D-R-L-I-S-A-D-U-N-N-E.com. And remember, strategic communication will help you build greater emotional health and relational resilience. So don't miss the next episode. I'm Dr. Lisa Dunn, and I look forward to talking with you next time right here on The Communication Architect.